This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Welcome to another episode of From the Old Brewery, a podcast that focuses on the work of researchers from the School of Language, Literature, Music and Visual Culture. I'm Shailini and I'm a second year PhD scholar doing an interdisciplinary research combining creative writing and sociology. As always, we've got a great researcher with us today whose project is really interesting and I'm really looking forward to speaking to her. We have with us today Ekiokere Ekie. Welcome to the show, Eki. Thank you, Shalini. Eki is in the third year of her PhD studies in language and linguistics under the supervision of Professor Robert McCall Miller and Dr. Agni Connor. She holds a first-class honors degree in English and Literary Studies from Niger Delta University, Nigeria, as well as an MA in English Language and Linguistics from the University of Westminster, London. She's previously worked as a phonology and communication skills instructor at the Institute for Chartered Accountants, Nigeria, and as a lecturer at the Federal University Otoke, Nigeria. Her research explores the interactive behavioral aspects of pidgin, Creole language use, focusing on Nigerian pidgin to examine the concept of social identity, which she considers to be a social construct rather than purely a linguistic one. She has attended and participated in several conferences and published some academic papers. Outside of her primary research, she is interested in intercultural communication as well as girl-child development, education and literacy, particularly in developing countries, which is her research area, which she hopes to be an advocate of in some time. So I'm really looking forward to speaking to you, Eki. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Shailene. So could you tell us a little more about your academic journey so far and how you came to Aberdeen and took up this uh, PhD? Um, I had my first degree in, um, from Niger Delta University, um, Biosystem State, Nigeria, um, where I studied English and Literary Studies. And upon graduation in 2009, um, usually we do this um, compulsory one-year service where you need to like give back to society. So that that's called National Youth Service Corps. So okay. I, I did mine in a different state in the east of Nigeria, um, Abia precisely, where I, I taught in a secondary school mm-hmm. for a year. And after that, I returned back to Bielsa State where I, I got um, a teaching job with um, a British school mm-hmm. um, and there basically what I did was to teach I, I taught phonology um, there and after like that was in 2012 because I finished my service in 2011 and then I got a job with the Federal University Otuweke, mm-hmm. um in the Department of English and Communication Studies as a graduate assistant first and then after a year um, between 2013 and 2014, I applied to the University of Westminster to do a master's degree in English and um, English language and linguistics. Then, after that, I returned back to Nigeria in 2016. Um, and I think in 2018, when I started thinking about my doctoral study, I had a friend here already, mm-hmm. um, Hygienus, Dr. Hygienus now. Um, and I asked him, like, 
what's Aberdeen like? What's the um, university culture like? What's the, you know, mm -hmm. what's just the PhD experience? Yeah. Like, and um, well, I got really good feedback from him, and I told him like what I was interested in doing. At first, it was um, code switching between English and the Ujo language, um, which is actually the language of the immediate community in uh -huh. Bielsa. So, and that's like the also the language my parents speak. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was interested in. And he asked me to, oh, have you heard about uh, Professor Robert Miller? Mm -hmm. Well, I'd been reading about him in books. Okay. <laughs> I, <laughs> I was, you know, excited. said, oh, well, I'll send him a, um, a proposal first to see what he thinks about my research and after that uh, if he gives like a green light i'll go ahead to apply so i did that and i was actually shocked at how fast <laughs> he responded and well that was it i applied um got admission and came here 2020 and we're still here oh excellent it's really fascinating sort of seeing your amazing journey there's so much you've done you've You've been part of the services, you've taught, you've taught at university and, uh, you know, school education. Uh, and then your sort of whole journey is really fascinating to hear. And, and you mentioned about a lot of aspects of code switching and things, which, which we will come to uh, as we go on. But the use of dialects and evolving language, as you mentioned, your parents' language and things, is an area of great interest in just sort of understanding societies and understanding people. So it would be really great for our listeners here of the podcast to know more about, you know, this aspect of understanding societies and dialects and evolving language uh, in relation to your research. However, to begin with, for those of us who may not be very familiar with this term, could you please tell our listeners a little bit about the Nigerian pigeon, which is the focus of your study? You could probably give us some examples as well. Um, Nigerian pidgin, like most contact languages, um, evolved out of a language contact situation. By language contact, I mean like a, a, a situation where people from different backgrounds congregate at a particular place at a particular time for whatever reason. But in this case, mm -hmm. um, you know, slave trade activities like from colonial um, past to interact with each other. Yeah. So in that kind of environment, where people um, did not have a particular language uh -huh. to communicate with each other. Yeah. They, they like, you know, try to accommodate themselves. So that, that kind of thing. So um, since um, they couldn't speak like the colonial masters mm -hmm. or um, neither could they speak each other's language, they, they looked for a way to uh -huh. communicate. So that initial medium of communication, mm -hmm. the, the first pigeon, mm -hmm. like, yeah, just simplified words, you yeah. know, you, you pick terms and the rest just, yeah. So um, from, from that stage, from just an initial communicative form yes. restricted, it's, if, um, if it continues being used by um, people who continue to interact with each other, it moves to, like, let's say, a restricted form of pigeon. Uh -huh. um, both the first form, like the initial pigeon, yeah. And this one, like they they can go as quickly as they came yeah. if people don't continue to use them because uh -huh. it's just for a specific purpose. Mm -hmm. Now, um, when you have people still using it yeah. for prolonged periods mm -hmm. and it begins to acquire functions yes. beyond just restricted use, mm -hmm. it becomes an extended 
pigeon. For people like um, um, Baker, you would say pigeon creole. Mm-hmm. Like that's, uh, it, it's, it's now a language for wider communication. Yeah. It has more functions, mm-hmm. social functions. Yeah. And at the same time, it also has some native speakers, like first speakers. So Nigerian pigeon falls into mm-hmm. either pigeon creole or an extended pigeon. Okay. In the sense that it's not the language of the whole country, mm-hmm. like the first language. Yeah. But it is the first language to some. Yes. And at the same time, it has acquired functions, mm-hmm. even beyond um, the restricted environments like informal settings. Mm-hmm. People people use it now in formal situations, okay. which like it was formerly excluded. Okay. So um, when I talk about Nigerian pigeon. I'm talking about its more developed state. Yeah. Not like you asked previously, mm-hmm. the broken from what people used to think. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's more developed yeah. state. So that's what I mean by Nigerian pigeon. Um, it's really, really interesting how a language is sort of developed and, you know, it moves on from its initial usage to be embraced more by people and perhaps yeah. becoming a form of their identities and you yeah, know what, what, and what they think is their own yeah uh, and i would also say nigerian pidgin is an english lexified language mm-hmm. so by that what it means that english is a major contributor of its lexem okay or, or um, lexus that kind of thing words major okay. contributor but at the same time we have uh, the substrate uh, languages as indigenous mm-hmm. languages, you know, mixture supplying and, and, into it, <laughs> yeah, words a large and, yeah. chunk of you know, yeah, that's excellent. That Could you perhaps, I don't know, would you would you like to give us some examples so, uh, of words of which are, pigeon? yeah, <laughs> oh, uh, for instance, um, when you say, um, asabi, right? Uh huh, sabi actually was, um, it's from Portuguese, okay, um, like I know how to write. Uh-huh. Or you say, I want chop, I want to eat. Okay. Those are just like the <laughs> the basic basic ones. Okay. But be, um, although right now, like it's the way most persons use it in society, it's it's developed beyond like that. That's interesting. I want chop, is it? <laughs> yeah, I oh, want chop. Excellent. I want to yeah. eat. Uh, it's it's really interesting how how you, you sort of your study is sort of focusing on and it's going to then now contribute towards you know pigeon <laughs> becoming some and the development of pigeon perhaps so your research really studies an aspect of social identity so if you could tell us a little more about your project and how it's developed so far in your first couple of years okay um when i arrived in 2020 like i i wanted to um do a project on code switching and uh in between each other and English language. However, um, two months into the program, I discovered there was a similar project um, that had been done by someone elsewhere. So um, I, I spoke about this with my supervisor and you know I started reading around and I came across um, reviews on Pidgin and Creole languages, specifically by Bikatien and then Professor McGee. And um, well, and I started like I remembered during my time in the University of Westminster, I had this lecturer, Dr. Anansia, mm-hmm. and he he taught us on world Englishes. And I remember there was this um, paper we did 
should pidgin or creole languages be used as the medium for teaching literacy mm-hmm. especially in situations where up to 80 percent use these languages and that was the first time like i well, yes i speak nigerian pidgin but i hadn't like thought about it from that angle that people used it yeah. for education because mm-hmm. back home we just you know use it as just for interaction and then Gradually, I, I began to see it in books, writings, and the rest of it. But after I did that uh, assignment, I really started developing interest uh-huh. in this thing because I found it interesting. And, well, when I decided to change my project topic, I said, well, well why don't I just go for pigeon? And as I started reading, I started seeing, like, not much had been done on synchronic um, language contacts as uh-huh. per language use at a specific time and how um, how in the bit to to be a certain way uh-huh. has affected the language okay. how is that made, how it has made impact okay. on the language so I discussed it with Professor Robert and we you know just write something and see like what happens and so <laughs> I, di- I, I did that and um, for my first year progression, I did a literature review on it. And then for um, second year, um, methodology collected data. And then right now, I'm actually um, doing my analysis and, you know, writing, writing Excellent. Up. Fascinating. When you say methodology, uh, I'll, I'll come back to it maybe. Okay. Uh, but like, You've been mentioning and you're sort of reading about it in our initial chat. You speak mm-hmm. about pigeon being an aspect of identity. You speak about code shifting and the evolution of pigeon to form sort of a distinct identity of pride. And you mentioned appropriation. So would you like to elaborate on sort of code shifting, etc., for our listeners? Well, like I said uh, previously, the, the tradition in most sociolinguistic um or like in the sociolinguistic literature has been, you know, this sort of attempt to prove the autonomy of Creole languages. Mm-hmm. By that, like um, the argument that Creoles and um, in, or the English language or whatever the lang- lexifier languages try to prove that they are two separate systems mm-hmm. and not same. So um, the tendency uh, is that people or researchers like try to place these languages at two extremes uh-huh. the standard and non-standard mm-hmm. and um sort of like comparisons mm-hmm. so in 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 my own case like such comparisons you say okay code switching you, you tend to look at two separate grammatical systems people are just uh using english for a specific situation, maybe uh-huh. formal, and uh, Nigerian pidgin for informal. But yeah. I'm not looking at it in that sense. Uh-huh. I'm looking at code switching and code mixing, like freedom of linguistic movement okay. um, that highlights hybridization. Okay. And so what I mean by appropriation is that linguistic assignment Okay of these language forms, mm-hmm. either full structures okay. or just elements of different languages yeah. into Nigerian pidgin um, conversations uh-huh. 
for the the for for fulfilling social social functional needs okay of the situation uh-huh. does that make sense yes it is beginning to yeah <laughs> yeah social functional needs of a situation now i came across appropriation from post-colonial discourse uh-huh. and there's usually the argument for appropriation and abrogation mm-hmm. by abrogation those who post-colonial writers like Ngugi Watheongo from Kenya mm-hmm. who advocates for the abrogation of the English language. Yeah. His argument um, was that like do it with, with English yeah. and let's write stuff in our indigenous languages. Mm-hmm. Then those who advocate for appropriation like the Nigerian writer, the late Chino Achebe, mm-hmm. uh, he, he says, well, I haven't given something. Yes, from a painful past, mm-hmm. but I have been given something and I intend to use it. Yeah. It's not a question of what happens while we recognize history, yeah. but what is happening now? Yeah. Instead of being stuck in the past, yeah. what, what can we use this language for? To do, yeah. So particularly in context where it's like multilingual context where people don't speak a particular language, mm-hmm. we need a lingua franca to communicate. Mm-hmm. You cannot do away with this language. There will be chaos and confusion in yeah. the whole place. So in our context, we cannot say we are abrogating the language. So what um, appropriation simply means for me, rather than looking at it from, from the um, negative aspect of the ex-colonials, like trying usurping cultures and mm-hmm. the rest of it, that's, that's not it. I'm looking at it positively yeah. as... Uh, a strategy mm-hmm. that speakers of Nigerian pidgin mm-hmm. used to um, modify yeah. the English language uh-huh. or forms that developed out of um, colonial experience uh-huh. to, to, to communicate yeah. or express or to bear the burden mm-hmm. of their cultural experience yeah. in context. Yeah. It's really interesting. And you mentioned uh some of your some of the writers and things i i have read a book lonely londoner recently by sam selvan who uses sort of this sort of language uh throughout the text to okay. translate the experience rather than uh use for want of a better term standardized english to convey the experience of you know people who are using it as as a marker of their identity so this is really interesting uh hearing you speak about uh how how your research approaches this so as 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 this progresses i mean in aside of the academics there are people who probably are using it as part of pop culture i i know from my own research one aspect of it is so, so social media interactions and how people use different aspects to perform their identities and mm-hmm. i recently last time uh, at the wayward festival had an interview with a social media person who uses bite-sized contents that become really popular who uses this sort of language to sort of convey childhood experiences okay. so uh, is there anything you'd like to add on in terms of popular culture and how how sort of any other strands of this and how it's been evolving i meant i, I remember you mentioning something around hoodlum speech yeah um now hoodlum speech um it's it's part of this a hoodlum doesn't carry this negative sense mm-hmm. 
or um, its original uh, denotative sense, like you know, troublesome behavior and the rest of it. I say it's a social construct now yeah. because it's just a way to position oneself uh-huh. in context. And this particular speech form is, um, uh, as I came to understand from the speakers themselves, is associated mainly with males, uh-huh. young males in um, in, in Bielsa. Um And what I've done with the languages, because it's, um, you know, Goa, it's an urban setting. Speakers are in close interaction with English. Mm-hmm. Now, um, they take lexical, um, like, elements. Uh-huh. That's where this code mixing, code shifting things come. But I'm, I'm looking at it as shifting identities. Okay. By shifting, like, a way of being. And this movement going on, like in conversations, mm-hmm. like this, this mixture, is just a way of positioning yourself, like in context. So, uh, hoodlum speech is a way for young males yeah. to identify with both the the their immediate environment mm-hmm. that's in Agua, yeah. but also the world apart from it. Yeah. So they use it to. Um, construct an identity that distinguishes it, that distinguishes them from the rest of the um, population or group mm-hmm. like the older groups or um, females yeah. in society so hoodlums is just a way of being in yeah. context it doesn't crystallize the identity yeah. it's just one aspect of their mm-hmm. social mm-hmm. experience so I'm looking at that aspect like um, in form of um, projections mm. of alignments, social yeah. alignments. Uh-huh. Is this something that uh, is hoodlum speeches ever taken on board by females or, you know? Yeah, this is not to uh, say is, that. Is, does it have a gender, real specific gender context associated with it? Yeah, it's actually it? um, regarded as a gendered practice or gendered behavior in that um, it's, it's, um, it diverges from the sociocultural interpretation of femininity like mm-hmm. what you know respectful femininity or adulthood respectful yeah. speech should be like but the thing is this um, people who tend to carry these connotations um, I think it's because of the fact of incomprehensibility mm-hmm. the fact that they cannot comprehend like um, what's going on with the language yeah. currently uh, so, for instance, um, I think I came across. Let Let's use like an example, like um, you you cap anyhow. Okay. The word cap. Uh-huh. We know, you know, English cap. Okay. Put on the head, mm-hmm. but cap in that context now means talk. Okay. Why are you speaking carelessly? Okay. But in everyday usage, you have stuff like. Why, why, that's the interpretation I just did. Why they talk anyhow? Mm-hmm. And then you come to English or Nigerian English, you speak carelessly. Okay. That's that kind of thing. So there's this like gradual changes. So what, hoodlums, which is just a way to position oneself in context and is influenced the, I'll say hip hop, mixture of hip hop, um, yeah. African American. Um, hip hop mm-hmm. style, and then local hip hop, then militancy culture in the region. Um, it's 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 not a hidden hidden stuff like 
this advocacy for resource and oil control, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So um, the language of this group, like, yeah. you know, kind of infiltrates into yeah. It's really society. interesting because there's so much in terms of sort of power, whether it is, you know, in a historical context, as yeah. you mentioned, of evolving in, you know, colonial context to it, again, of power and moving away from that. Also, when you mention your masculinity and femininity, also there is the social power structure yes. that positions, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and decides how masculinity and femininity should yeah. be performed. And it's interesting to hear how language and dialects and mm -hmm. how languages are spoken and adapted uh, on, on an agenda context can can become performative elements. Yeah, actually. Uh, so it's, I mean, so far it's, I mean, it's, I'm sure like myself, a lot of our listeners are finding all of this quite new terms like code switching because you, you're a linguist, <laughs> but not not everyone is so familiar with this. And it's, it's lovely to hear about the amount of work that's going on around uh, in terms of understanding people and cultures and, uh, you know, hybridization in them. You mentioned your PhD is funded by the special research grant uh, tertiary education fund. Is your project an extension, then I wonder, uh, of a conversation that you may have had with sort of educational policymakers because you mentioned you, you've already started uh, some kind of work back home and then that sort of progressed towards this. So could you tell us a little more about your trust fund? Yeah, um, the Cheshire Education Trust Fund uh, in Nigeria um, deals with like this um, in charge of um, academic staff training. Mm -hmm. And so uh, usually what happens is if you submit um, a proposal and it's, you know, it's something they can relate to and think it's worth funding. Okay. Um, you you know put in your application and you get the grant. So, I, the first time I accessed the grant was for my masters uh -huh. to come to um, University of Westminster, and then subsequently for my PhD. Well, what I had submitted before, as I mentioned earlier, was about code switching because yeah. I was doing like uh, uh, I was continuing from where I stopped in my masters because yeah. I also did that. But like I said, due to the peculiarities of, you know, stuff out of my control, I had to change my topic. Yeah. And, well, in Nigeria, what is done is, basically, you just see arguments about still this normal tradition of comparisons. Yeah. Uh, you know, some parties will say, make the language the, the national language. Mm -hmm. And then um, others will say... Uh, no, it's a, it's a bad form. Mm -hmm. um, I think it prevents children from performing better in school yeah. and these sort of back and forth um, argument. And so, well, I only, I, I, um, I, you know, pitched my idea to them, like, I'm not coming from this angle of, you know, the regular arguments mm -hmm. or looking at history. Yeah. We already know what's happened. Yeah. I'm going to look at the language, like what's happening now, and if it's, if people are advocating for making this language the national um, language, have you actually spoken to those who use the language? Yeah. Because you, you cannot get an objective reality outside your experience mm -hmm. of those who live in that culture, and so you know, that's kind of like the conversation. Uh huh. You talk to these people. 
how is the language evolving and what are people doing yeah. with the language outside of this um ambivalent um, attitudes that tend to be portrayed in literature mm -hmm. where you assign pidgin language to the lower cadre yeah. or lower class and then the english language to the self-imposed elites politicians yeah. and yeah. let's say um you know people who like write this literature stuff because these things actually you know feed this negative um attitudes yeah. to what people write and the rest of it so when i when i spoke from this angle uh -huh. so like they bought it and right now what at every stage in the research i have to report back report back to them yeah okay and so it's that kind of interaction right now yeah. to see where this thing you know takes how how you could yes. take this forward so it's yeah. really exciting because uh research adding to knowledge is one thing and then advocating this to sort of bring about some change in future in yeah. terms of education this is really exciting that you've already sort of had a conversation with you know, government bodies and education yeah. policy makers and that you the work that you're doing is already positively going towards making a bringing about a change so i'd be really excited to you know know how how yeah and you know this this thing about when you just clamor for standardization and instrumentalization there are so many factors you have to for a country that is that big mm -hmm. different regions speak theirs uniquely yeah we don't all speak it the same way even though we understand the everyday normal um, pigeon you're going to talk about this stuff of codification what variety do you use yeah are you going to be flexible in terms of variability yeah those those kind of stuff so there are so many things involved yeah if 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 you make this language like just for everybody you need to consider it speaks to different aspects mm -hmm. people need to agree yeah. on what should be um used so that that kind of stuff so you you cannot just focus on the linguistic aspect yeah you need to look at the social aspect of this language the yeah. social life yeah. what the language means yeah. to these people who use it yeah so that's that kind of thing yeah It needs so to be a marrying of if this is a skeleton, <laughs> if linguistics is like the skeletal part of it, the social part is going to be like the flesh too, you know. So there yeah. needs to be a marrying of yeah, is, absolutely. Is I mean, when when sort of standardized forms are imposed, especially in children's education, it can have a huge impact on how, like as you mentioned, mm -hmm. sort of they imbibe education and sort of they they yeah. their approach towards learning even yeah. perhaps. Exactly. I mean, if, how. how is is are they learning it in a language that they are easily able to relate to or is this mm -hmm. something that is imposed on them so it's it's really interesting so you also um mention your particular interest in the development of education of girl child and you know our listeners would love to hear some more about your initiative on that aspect even if it, whether or not it's part of your research no actually it's not it's not like something the focus of my research but it's something i'd like to pursue like beyond now um girl child education well i i became interested in that uh like back home um sometimes or in most in some situations mm -hmm. you see not everyone can afford you know to go to school and because of the economic situation and then there is this uh this cultural thing going on in some interior communities where parents just feel 
females are just there to procreate, mm-hmm. um, empower the male child, mm-hmm. and you know leave the females to just get married. And so you see, sometimes you have a conversation with these young ladies. Yeah, I mean they can they express themselves so well, like. Mm-hmm. They can be better than you know what's what's what been is, put in front uh, yeah, of them. What they what the yeah. resources are being made available to them. Yeah. So um, I I just feel for me it's a way to just break out of that norm, that fixed that box, that place where they've just yeah. been. Um, what's, what's normatively accepted and yeah. expected of uh, the girl child and risk limiting. Perhaps. Yeah, that kind of thing. So a way to just make them think expand mm-hmm. their horizon like just make them useful to themselves that kind yeah. of thing so try and explore what what are the avenues that, they can yeah. sort of personally develop yeah that uh, that kind of thing so um personally i i i started speaking like with my university and you know um currently we have like 15 students Although it's not a formal, like I've, I haven't formally registered anything. It's just a way for me to give back yeah. to to society. So, yeah. and it's something I would like to, maybe after my PhD, well, mm-hmm. I, I hope to, you know, see that before that. Yeah. Yeah. This is really interesting. And I'm sure a lot of people will agree with your sort of idea. And, um, and a lot of people might relate to this because, as you mentioned in Nigeria, a girl-child education initiative, as far as I know, my, 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 I grew up in India. My childhood was there. So it is a huge thing, perhaps, for a lot of countries who may have been sort of ex-colonial mm-hmm. uh, historically to have, you know, different initiatives in place. But, of course, the, the sort of power structure in yeah, it's uh, gen- gender-based uh, mm-hmm. power structures within society mm-hmm. is not something that is only uh, yeah, uh, it, it pro- perhaps more pronounced in certain areas, which needs more work. But we, we you could have this conversation everywhere. Yeah, because true. these sort of gender norms uh, 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 needs to continuously be addressed. Whether it is you could look at it from any lens in terms of trying to bring about more egalitarianism yeah. perhaps. So now bringing the conversation back to Pigeon, I, I, I know you mentioned Chinua Achebe. Are there any other writers whose work you, you know, particularly influenced by who you're looking at in terms of your PhD? Well, I'm, I'm not really looking at literary works per se. The angle I'm looking at literary works is how is the writings of these people, like post-colonial writers in Nigeria, has it affected attitudes towards okay. Nigerian pigeon mm-hmm. representations? Have they represented people who use this language? So well, I'm going to be looking at Kaini Agari's Yellow Yellow. That's um, a book actually set within Bielsa, mm-hmm. the Niger Delta okay. area. And it's just basically about, uh, you know, this relationship between expatriates foreign expatriates and the women and children born out of that relationship, mm-hmm. mulattoes, like how they navigate society and that kind of thing. So I'll be looking at how how like these attitudes are portrayed in writing. Okay. 
So you've spoken about how, you know, your PhD came about and what you've been doing in terms of your first year, second year work and how this relates to uh, education policy making. It's, it's been really interesting. I'd like to know, in terms of a public engagement here in Aberdeen, uh, have you been doing anything in terms of making people aware other than, of course, our podcast? Is there any any kind of similar work that you find uh you know, in terms of public engagement, is there anything you've been doing? Well, that's it's the tradition. First year annual conference, LLMVC conference. I did mine in 2021 where I spoke about contextual applications of Creole. And then um, there was this conference in Cote d'Ivoire, mm-hmm. talked about, you know, what at this stage I was at then I just talked about my methodology yep. and what I hope to um, achieve and uh, and several other conferences okay I I participated in the conference in Excess I think that was last year okay. but I didn't really look at my project I looked at um, English as you know a lingua franca yeah. this this uh, thing about you know education mm-hmm. how how can it how is used in second language yeah. um context to teach yeah. attitudes and the rest yeah no i mean uh, when i initially asked you in terms of public engagement what came to my mind was the mother language day which uh is, is celebrated in aberdeen every year yeah. um i think so, in association with multi-ethnic aberdeen and grampian regional equality council I so heard that. yeah so they they actually celebrate a lot of languages across mm. the globe, dialects okay. and cultures and people coming together. It's really, it's it, it's beautiful to see that celebration. Have you attended? Uh, I, I attend it every year, actually. Ah. So that's that's why my personal interest. But this is what came to my mind when I asked you the question around public engagement. Uh, so is there anything around that sort of area or um, that you'd like to share with us? Well, why well, I haven't done what you asked like in that line I'm, I'm going to be like teaching creole and uh, creolization in uh, um, next semester with um, professor uh, robert miller so oh excellent that's that kind of thing so it, that's something that is very related to my um, project so yeah excellent i'm really excited for you so you've you've really told us a lot about how and I, I can see already how beautifully the you know you, you've, you've, you've planned it out for the future but as such in terms of uh, you know following your PhD because you're in your third year are there any other plans for postdoctoral research or is it just sort of taking this back to policy making? Well I, I hope to do I hope to tow that line postdoctoral stop. I, I started speaking about it with my supervisor you know advice and you know i'll see how it goes excellent yeah. uh, so uh, it's been really lovely speaking to you eki and i i've certainly found out a lot about you know your area of research and about things that i've not been familiar with uh, like code shifting and uh, pigeon itself and the use of it it's really interesting and i hope people you know get interested in your research and it goes really well and all your future plans work out brilliantly so thank you for speaking to us and sharing your research with us thank you shelly
This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.